How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Sarah Hendren, an artist, design researcher, writer, and professor of design at Olin College of Engineering in Massachusetts. For the past decade, Hendren's work has focused on collaborative public art and social design that engages the human body, technology, and the politics of disability. She is the author, most recently, of the book, What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World, published in August by Riverhead. I spoke with Sarah via Zoom earlier this month to talk in more detail about the book, which I've got to say is beautifully written. Its chapters radiate out thematically, from the limbs of the body, to furniture, to rooms and buildings, to the public realm of streets, and finally to the clock, painting a vivid picture of disability as a continuum which, in countless ways, we all pass through. Disability, through Hendren's view, also knocks at the foundations of individualism, reinforcing instead the universality of needfulness, interdependence, and care. And now... Here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I guess before we get to the book, um, I wondered if you could help me understand how an artist finds her way into an engineering school. Yes, this is still a mystery to me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I can tell you sort of 25 years in a very uh, condensed paragraph, which is that I um, studied visual arts. I then, uh, after working for a couple of years in education research, I started a PhD and dropped out of a PhD um, at ABD. I mean, I went quite a long way in that PhD in cultural and intellectual history because I'd been making things in the studio as an undergrad and I was kind of like, but where do our ideas come from? You know, and it it wasn't, I didn't want a kind of private journal, you know, of an art practice, sort of Sarah's personal universe. I had this restless kind of curiosity about where ideas come from in my late twenties. And then in the course of getting that PhD, including going abroad and studying and doing dissertation research, I thought, wow, I really am missing making things because I was going to conferences and writing papers and thinking, is this all there is? And so I dropped out of a PhD, was very underemployed for a while, um, went back to making things, you know, had some shows, sold some paintings. My, the eldest of my three children was born, Graham, who has Down syndrome. I was ushered into this vast visual culture, you know, and sort of design universe of assistive technology and prosthetics. And I found a way, <laughs> uh, long story short, in the next half dozen years to both locate artists who were working with prosthetics and thinking about the body in that way, and also to write my way into a kind of practice by the, the practice of blogging I, um, at the beginning, because I had three kids in five years and I was home a lot and I wanted them to make the web do something for me in that way. 
and this is before social media had aggregated all content and so on. So the blogosphere became this kind of place for me to write myself into a way of working. And then I went back to Harvard GSD um, for a terminal MFA because I knew ultimately I probably would land in academia. And I uh, used that kind of what it's called art design in the public domain. It's a master's in design studies. And I used those two years to sharply, you know, articulate for myself a place where disability studies met design. And I also started to articulate a wish to be actually deep in the laboratory, not in a kind of gallery making culture alone. And so I finished at Harvard and then I pitched a class to RISD called Investigating Normal, where I was like, let's see if we can do this, make some art, make some design, call it one thing, house it in disability studies. And my students at RISD were really game for that, industrial designers at that time and artists. And so my bravery got a little fortified and I applied for a job at Olin College of Engineering and here I am seven years <laughs> later. I wondered if you could talk more about how having a child with Down syndrome changed the way you think about material culture and was a kind of catalyst for the work you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, two things were happening. So, you know, when you have a child with Down syndrome, they Im immediately qualify for what's called early intervention in the United States. And so that's a program between age a couple of months and three, three years of age, where they get in-home therapies, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and other kinds of um, ancillary therapies, in addition, of course, to doctors and so on. And all of those settings were filled with uh, a riot of gadgetry. I mean, prosthetics in every direction and also the unusual kinds of prosthetics that I had never, ever seen before. So in addition to little ankle braces and like the tiniest little glasses, Graham started wearing glasses at 11 months, right? The tiniest little glasses you can imagine. But those, those physical therapy rooms were full also of like bouncy balls and foam mats and really clever swings and like the, the the most ingenious toys all of which was framed as play for him to you know learn to kind of balance his you know the the uh, like compensate for the uh, low muscle tone and so on in his body so that was happening there's this sort of like wow capture my imagination and meanwhile, right, we were also, my husband and I and Graham, our first baby, were all around in public where people were making meaning of his diagnosis as a kind of monolithic one way to describe him, deeply reductive way to describe him. They were predicting his future and they were, you know, sort of ranking and hierarchizing about him because of his genetic status. And I thought, how do I reconcile these two things, right? This like absolute proliferation of designed stuff in which ideas are really like really fertile and really um, imaginative and like um, like the world is being mapped and remapped, you know, in, in things and designed and redesigned with all those interventions with this really flattened way of talking about who he is. So that launched a whole a decade of study in disability studies, what disabled people have been talking about for forever, which is about the way that disability is a reductive kind of, you know, monolith of identity and the way that people with disabilities get spoken about and spoken for and spoken over, you know, around their wishes. So th those two things in tension were a way for me to both feel a sense of commitment and purpose to finding this stuff out, you know, a kind of justice horizon and a rights horizon, but also the creativity of the of visual culture and design I want to understand more about the work you were doing before um, you started teaching that was more self-led and had to do with a blog you kept called The Abler. Yeah, just called Abler. Abler. Yeah, I mean, so truly that was like, I started in, I want to say 2009. And um, that that blog was started because I you know I wanted to make a website as an artist, but I didn't want it to be just a static gallery. And I thought, how can I make this into a much more interactive kind of environment? And I was looking at Building Blog and at Pruned and at Nicola Twilley's blog, Edible Geography. And mm -hmm. I thought, here are these people who are writing about material culture as an index of ideas. So Jeff Maynard was looking at architecture, but architecture as a kind of very loose, you know, um, organizing principle for talking about geopolitics and talking about, um, you know, uh, 
the environment, talking about healthcare, any number of things. And I thought, that's what I want to do with prosthetics. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't know at that time was, I mean, much later, a colleague said to me, oh, you know, that Kohlhaas actually wrote early in his career. And, and was there was a kind of way of using, you think of theory as usually coming after practice, if you're going to look back and write about what you've built or envisioned in the studio, but sometimes it can go the other way around. And for me, that was also true. In other words, I was collecting and commenting in a kind of magazine style. So Abler was about prosthetics, but not in that, you know, um, gadget blog, like, gee whiz, engineering so great. Like there was a little bit of that. And then there was like a lot of artists like Rebecca Horn and Mary Mattingly and Legia Clark, all these folks who've been looking at and using prosthetics, weird kind of, you know, critical prosthetics and the body and its extensions for a long time. And what happens when you mix those things? And all of that for me, I realize now with hindsight, was a way to ramp up, so to speak, to making stuff in the studio. In other words, getting braver about saying, assistive technology and prosthetics can include a a lot of artwork and a lot of questions and a lot of one-offs and weird cultural critical design objects in addition to doing really pragmatic and functional things. I mean, that for me was critical, was to be able to say that it's neither just the lab or the studio, right? It's neither just um, we make products that go out for mass manufactured scalability or we make artwork and things to think with, but to try to insist on on an undivided house where useful stuff could be made right alongside poetic stuff. And in the best cases that those two things would be mixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Jeff Manor was on the show um, earlier this year um, and Building Blog was a real influential platform for me. And I know a whole generation of designers and architects as well. And um, just skimming through Abler, uh, you're right. There's this extensive and omnivorous approach to design, design writing, I guess. And it's a kind of criticism that really elegantly balances between academic and popular writing. Yeah, Um, yeah. And you mentioned in another interview that when you were writing that blog, you were really imagining the audience as being made up primarily of people interested in technology, people who might be reading websites like Ismodo or magazines like Wired. That's right. you weren't a tech writer. Right. And I wonder if you could talk more about finding the voice you write in now. Yeah, thank you for just attending to that and noticing it. And I, and I take omnivorous as like a super high compliment. <laughs> um, that That is deeply, very much an aspiration of mine. In other words, I think that curiosity is among the highest virtues. And I do think, I do wanna, um, live that kind of omnivorous, you know, like super wide uh, lens, heterodox set of interests. Um, Right. And and Abler had a very particular audience, I think because, right, I understood that folks who build technology have have a disproportionate lever on the shape of our everyday lives, right? They have a kind of lever in hand, literal lever, you know, but I mean, a sort of metaphorical lever in the form of software and form of hardware um, that that disproportionately, you know, gives a kind of power to shaping uh, daily life for everyone and not least uh, folks with disabilities who many of them would call themselves disabled people. And I realized when I was getting to know, you know, other parents of kids with Down syndrome, other people with Down syndrome, I thought there's so many ways in which the advocacy work that we're doing is this echo chamber. Like we're talking to ourselves about the kinds of things that matter to us. So it was so clear to me that in order to build a kind of field that sees differently, that sees difference differently, that sees ability differently, human worth, dignity, and so on differently, you have to find a number of venues, a number of audiences, a number of vernacular choices in order to make that happen. And you need to be deliberate about that. And, and um, so I would say that, that, you know, in an intuitive way at that time with Abler, I knew that I, I mean, I remember I left a PhD, right? So somehow I was restless and, you know, and, and dissatisfied with academic language as such, right? Which is, which it felt to me in its best cases, of course, is truly making new knowledge. In its worst, I think, is hermetically sealing a kind of water, watertight set of arguments that are built on languages that are internal to a field and don't don't tend to permeate beyond the academy. So I was I was already restless about that. And so I thought, well, 
can smart journalism and what really was tech criticism and design criticism at that time, again, thinking about Jeff, Nicola, other folks, Rob Holmes, I mean, I, you know, I was like, could, could I bring some of that nourishment that I had gotten in graduate school and translate it for a lay reader, right? Here's this good complexity um, in the history of science and so on. Could I make it legible? Because I just knew, I think I'm a translator most of all. I just knew that there were people who were smart enough to handle uh, and really grapple with some of those deep ideas. In the book, it's in disability studies, but also in thinking hard about technology with our wits about us. But I just am always, I'm just committed to a kind of pragmatic vernacular language. And I really love literary journalism. And I just, um, you know, I, I, I was thinking in the writing of this book about somebody like Oliver Sacks, but also somebody like Atul Gawande, like in different ways, both of those folks have a deep wonder about the body, but they also, in Gawande's case, I think he's not a writer's writer. He actually just, he wants to actually shift the culture, like do that frame shifting, see the body and see health and well-being differently. And I thought, you know, Sacks was somebody who had this just incurable gee whiz about this sensing organ, you know, like what bodies do. And um, I, I knew that both of those folks, in addition to this whole, you know, universe of disability studies, were in my mind's eye about the kind of interaction that I wanted to have with people. Because again, like, remember, disability studies is this just like, it's just this repository of fascinating language, but it also is an academic field in its origins. And so I understood, right, that lots of smart people were not going to come along for that ride uh, unless it's it's made really plain. And I just love that work. I love doing that kind of work. Like what's the, what's the, you know, what's the right set of adjectives? What's the right conceptual track to lay without getting bogged down? You know, like that to me is just the most fun, really mm. difficult and fun work. You mentioned Oliver Sacks, who to me is a real humanist. Yeah. When it comes to writing about medicine or the medical sciences yeah. um, and also just writing about people or centering people yeah. in these broader um, discussions about a particular discipline. Yeah. And, um, like your writing has been described as bringing humanism to discussions about technology. Yeah. And I wonder what that's like for you now compared to even a decade ago, where yeah. it seems like popularly the cultural view on technology has taken a turn to understand it's more pernicious or um, frankly disabling yeah. Uh, aspects. Yeah. That's right. It looks really different than it did 10 years ago, certainly in the framing of prosthetics, but also, right, generally, I mean, I, you know, I got to know when Twitter was also a very different place a decade ago, folks like Joanne McNeil, who've been writing critically about the internet for a long time, and now, right, we're seeing that, that language and that, that critique and backlash, you know, in, in much, many more popular forms. So I felt like a you know, 10 years ago, I was looking in vain for a certain kind of criticality and a proper skepticism about the excesses of tech. Um, and looking for, yeah, what does the humanist look for? I mean, in Stephen Toulman's terms, you know, the, the local, the oral, the particular, and the timely, as opposed to the abstract and standardized and scalable and sort of mathematically clean and clinical, right? That the humanist is paying attention to those those deep localities and particularities and, and, and cultivating that attention to them. And it's interesting because now I find there is no shortage of technology criticism. And if anything, you know, what I really wanted the book to be was both, yeah, an acknowledgement of good criticisms and things, ways to think differently about stuff like scale as the only metric of impact, you know, in kind of Silicon Valley culture and, um, you know, a kind of rethinking independence as the only thing to design toward for aging, for example. Um, but more than that, I have to say, Matthew, I really wanted to show people where design was doing well and where technology was doing well. In other words, I actually find myself equally a humanist and also a pragmatist in the most like constitutional dispositional way. In other words, I show people in the book, 
examples of things that are tell stories about places where design and the body meet in like very creative and affirmative ways about the possibilities for design. You're like, I, in other words, I take no pleasure in actually being a kind of um, an unmasking kind of critic, you know, like, oh, you all are duped by this, you know, kind of narrative of technological progress. I'm going to show you how it's all wrong. So kind of just say for listeners, right, the book takes you through like it's structured limb, chair, room, street, clock. So it's it's organized by objects and it is full to the brim with stories of people in that kind of journalistic voice. And then it goes really high to the kind of zooming out to history and theory and, you know, sort of ideas. And then we zoom right back in to stories of people in their lives. So it's stuff like the way that a man with one arm changes his baby's diaper, you know, his newborn baby's diaper with a kind of prosthesis that he rigs up himself, but also the legacy of World War II and rehabilitation engineering and, you know, prosthetic limbs and, but also then the air on chair and universal design and the OXO good grips and, you know, um, deaf space at Gallaudet University designed for dementia, the history of curb cuts, right? It's It mm. tries to be a kind of whole panoply of, of places where it's going well. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in criticism um, and I'm really interested in, in being a what if person, most of all, what if, what if, what if, showing all the ways that other people have said, what if, it could be otherwise, it could be otherwise. Mm-hmm. That's magical about design. I wanna get into these specific stories that you're mentioning. But I'm also really drawn to um, this question of what if, and before that disappears in our conversation, I want to hold on to it for a moment. Yeah. Um, there is this term you like to use called, what is it, productive uncertainty? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me where that comes from and why that's so important. Yeah. I mean, so I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I'm uh, talking a lot to young design students now, undergrad and grad in various ways. I think a lot about what political theorist Daniel Allen called the work of prophetic reframing in building civic agency. So she thinks of civic agency and our participatory readiness as civic actors, as containing like, what what what, what do you need in a democracy? You need you know d- disinterested deliberation. She says you need fair fighting. These kind of modes of of debating what is the common good and so on. But one of the things she says, so you have to go, it's a, that's a deep field in democratic theory. But one of the things she s- says you do need also is the reframing of the world. In other words, the rhetorical redescription of the way the world is or the way the world might be. So if you look toward W.B. Du Bois, or you look at certainly Martin Luther King, right? When he says, I've been to the mountaintop, when he says, I have a dream, those are not just beautiful, poetic turns of phrase. That is a reframing of what the future might look like, right? And so Alan is saying to us, that use of rhetoric, it shifts the frame on the world as it is so that we see it differently and therefore we behave differently in response to it, if that makes sense. So for me, the reframing that's happening Um, is in trying to take rehabilitation engineering and to say, this is a kind of field that looks like big tech saving broken bodies and, you know, like sort of swooping us off to the, to the post-human and we have, we can leave our worries about the body's frailty and vulnerability behind. I am trying in my small way, I'll never be like Du Bois or King, but in my small way to reframe and say, if you saw these stories differently, if you widened your lens and saw technology everywhere, if you looked at the vast plane of assistance that bodies are getting all the time, would you ask that what if question, right? What if it were me who lost an arm late in life? What if I were to be diagnosed with dementia? What if, right, my child got a diagnosis that I was not expecting? What if then, okay, so what are the resources that I would marshal to make good decisions? But then what if the world could look different with this you know, new body in it? And what if a life worth living could be built? What if a life worth living could be built? And, and, and that disability would not need to be only a tragedy story. And for me, that's the most, that's when things get really, really exciting and where design does its best work, where it says, what if? And so productive uncertainty is about that moment of reframing where you go, oh, wait a minute. I thought I understood what ALS is. What is ALS? It's one of the most difficult diagnoses you can get. It's a death sentence for sure. What can we hope for there? A compassionate death, right? But Steve Sailing, who appears in the room chapter of the book, 
builds a life worth living with ALS in it. So he is reframing. You see what I mean? So now you are productively uncertain about what you thought before about ALS, but also about your own body and also about life with help in it. And all those, all those things now are being shuffled in your brain. And so you are proceeding then differently. I hope that's not too um, theoretical and abstract, but to no. me, the reframing, reframing from the studio and reframing in language to me, that's, that, that is the most exciting work there is. Mm. For me, the, this experience of productive uncertainty is also really deeply felt in reading the book yeah. as well. And especially in this notion that, or this reminder essentially that disability uh, is in some sense a continuum. And that's not to say that we should all try and understand ourselves as being in some way disabled, but to quote um, another review of the book, um, we enter our lives acutely dependent on other people. We often exit our lives also in a period of dependence. And in between we traffic in and out of experiences of needing one another. We know that what makes us flourish is connection. That's right. Speaking yeah, totally. That. I mean, that is my hope that that productive uncertainty arrives in the affirmative way, right? Which is, as you said, it's not to say we're all disabled, right? That's a, that's a cheapening and flattening exercise. But you don't have to say that to say, oh, but disability identity is precisely an unstable identity, right? Why? Because we know that the fundamental state of the human is to include dependence, not just interdependence, right? I get into a discussion about this and various theorists who talked us through what is independence, interdependence, but the plain fact of dependence too, right? That we enter our lives acutely dependent on other people and we often end our lives that way. What does that mean? We can be, we can lament that fact or we can say, this is part of what is. And so we can organize a world that it both acknowledges it and even understands the places where what we want in a salutary way from our lives can grow in the, in the moments where we both give and receive help. And that is, it seems to me in a decade of study of disability, one way to summarize it is to say that disability is no more and no less than personal and political needfulness, full stop, right? And so, it, so do you participate in those politics? You bet you do, right? Does that mean that your life is exactly the same as a wheelchair user or someone with Down syndrome? No, there are, there are clear distinctions there, political and otherwise. But we get as designers, we actually get to a much more important sort of deeply grounded and uh, creative set of questions when we say, oh, I live on that planet too, right? So to me, this is a counterpoint to, to the kind of broad language these days of inclusion, right? I think inclusion I, imagines here's a set of social and political goods and my job is to extend the canopy of those goods and make sure no one is quote left out, right? And that, that those are extended beyond that what they've been in the past. I mean, no one's against that kind of inclusion, but it seems to me far more radical an invitation and a true one to say, I actually live with help. Okay, so if I start with that as part of my extended body, right, which is getting assistance from all my stuff here on my desk all the time, and also from other people in an ecosystem of care, then I'm, then I'm just located, right? The self is located in a, in a right-sized way relative to other people. And now we're, now we're having a different set of conversations about what a desirable world is. Maybe this is a chance now to talk about these two different models or ways of understanding disability. Yeah. Uh, and shifting away from the medical model and towards the social. Could you yeah. unpack yeah, what the social model of disability is? Yeah. And this is a... Um, a whole vast field of scholarship that I will, I will, you know, kind of crudely generalize about. But um, so it's more complicated than this in the field, of course, as things are in academia. But it's really still useful to make a broad distinction between a medical model of disability and a social model of disability. So in a medical model, that tends to be the one that people inherit in kind of post-industrial cultures for lots of reasons, which is to say, if I write become an amputee tomorrow, then I have an impairment in my body. And what that means is that I have a medical condition that I need to adapt to. I need to maybe overcome. I need to find all the gear to help me come to the world as it is because the world is not gonna shift or change. Now, so a medical model has biological facts in it and no one would dispute those, right? But a social model just invites you to widen the lens and the aperture of where disability is actually located. So in other words, I have friends who use wheelchairs who don't say, 
uh, I'm disabled because my legs don't ambulate. They say I'm disabled by a world that's full of stairs, right? So, so what that means then is that disability literally in its locale could be shifted from just a property of the body to this space between my body and this desk, between my body and this chair, between my body and this laptop. So then, then the question becomes really interesting. It's what Rosemary Garland Thompson calls a misfit condition, which has got a simple, a deceptively simple word. But she says, that means that disability is being a square peg in a round hole world. But if you're a square peg in a round hole, it's actually not clear where the onus lies to shift the shape of things. So if I'm the square peg then, and I become an amputee tomorrow, yes, maybe I'm gonna go for some prosthetic gear that will help me come to the world. Um, or if I become a wheelchair user tomorrow, maybe I'm gonna look for the best wheelchair that I can, motorized or one that I push, who knows? I, I would make those selections. But I might also, and history shows that people have done, I might also instead, or in addition, ask the world a little bit to come to me. So here's where for architects, stuff gets really interesting. Wheelchair users did say, right, some decades ago, we need curb cuts at every corner, you know, every sidewalk corner when it meets the street needs to have a little chunk cut out to make a diagonal, an incline plane, where that meeting happens so that people in wheelchairs can make their smooth passage through the city. And like this has gone to sleep in our collective imagination. Like it's so banal that we don't even think about it anymore. But think about how improbable that seemed at the time. Oh, wheelchair users are, you know, a tiny you know, part of the population. Really, we're going to roll out at infrastructural scale this kind of change to the built environment. And yet it has been done. And so, in other words, that square peg round hole conundrum becomes a two-way interactive kind of dynamism of where design would locate itself. Is it designed for the body to come to the world? Or sometimes is it the world to come a little closer to the body? And to me, that's the most interesting research set of questions I can imagine. It makes me think of the importance of empathy in the design process mm. and how difficult and abstract maybe it is to address that problem or that conundrum. Um, yeah. But equally, it's so crucial to be able to see, I guess, first of all, that there is this conflation of what we're calling design and then also what we call the world. Um, yeah. Because it's yeah. only through design that the world can start to meet different yeah. bodies in different ways. Yeah. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be this really deep and committed sense of empathy with um, whoever. Uh, is to use these spaces or these objects inevitably. But there's a, there's a particularity there as well. And maybe this is where we can start looking at uh, these specific stories or, or um, people who you're kind of dropping in on in, in the book. Yeah. Yeah, let me just say that um, I find myself pushing back on the notion of empathy, at least in the way that it's practiced right now in design education, only because, well, a couple of things. One is that um, you know, the, these uh, simulation exercises that a lot of folks like to use where you sort of take students around in a wheelchair on campus for a day. And mm. so it's meant to be this, it's meant to be an empathy exercise where you say, look how, you know, what, the, what it means to, to navigate in, a, in wheeled mobile gear. And the data on that show that folks, instead of feeling empathy that opens up good design ideas, they tend to come away with two conclusions. One is it's really difficult to be disabled. And two is like, th I'm thankful now that I'm not like that, right? Huh. Which that, that is actually a shutting down of design mm. ideas, right? And also because you're not seeing the creativity and the adaptation, right? Because if you are reversing your way of moving through the world, you're doing wheelchair for one day, right? You have, that has nothing in common with what it would mean to use a wheelchair for two and a half years and mm. to become quite balletic and integrated with that machine, right? So you're missing all of that adaptation and creativity and you're seeing only the 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 diminishment of experience. So we had to be careful with that stuff. But the reason why I wrote the book in the way I did is just to echo what I said before, which is that like, I'm actually inviting you reader, no matter the state of your body to actually recognize, not even to empathize, but to recognize your own needfulness, right? And anybody who's been alive on the planet for a little bit of time, who's been in some extended family of care, who's watched people struggle with chronic depression, who's seen a grandparent, right, um, lose some of their capacities, if you are attentive to those things, then you know that it's in your life. So if you are going to design then, then what you need to be activating is your own stakes in that game. That's where mm. you get a better set of questions mm. where you say, oh, yes, I live on that planet too, but your needs are different than mine. But they don't, your needs don't just constitute 
a diminishment of my experience. They live on that same continuum. So what that means is that you are both disabled and also enabled, that there are closures in your experience and also openings. That's where good design starts to happen. It's that quality of attention. So right, in the book, I try to demonstrate where that's happening, that the, the urgency of the matter, which is not hard for people to understand, meets the creativity of disabled people at the heart of that design work. And, and the creativity is what people often miss. So again, you know, we, we drop in on a man who uh, was born with one arm, had a bunch of prosthetic limbs built for him as a child, but whose body is so adaptive and plastic in the way that all bodies are, that he has just done life one-handed and with his incredibly dexterous feet and toes and stuff and in the way that any of us would if our bodies were to change tomorrow. And certainly if we were born the way he was, he's known nothing else. So he did, we meet him at the moment where he did need a kind of tool and extension um, that he made himself. And that was when his newborn baby uh, needed a diaper change. And if you have changed the baby, a baby's diaper, then you know it's at least a two-handed job, <laughs> typically. Mm-hmm. So um, he just fashioned for like 10 bucks, uh, you know, out of soft cords and uh, like a little holster to, to hoist up his baby's ankles so that he could change the diaper with his one hand. And I show that story as one instantiation in a vast history of prosthetics that does include another man that we meet who has an $80,000 myoelectric arm, which is the best that money can buy in the laboratory expertise sense. And I try to show those two stories as a, a contrast in this reframing way that I was talking about before to reframe rehabilitation engineering. And what is rehabilitation engineering? It's this, again, post-war, World War II, big research dollars and scientific um, uh, undertaking, sort of research effort and labs and money behind it to supply prosthetic replacement parts to men who had come back from the war, right? As a, as a kind of recompense for their sacrifice. And and the stories that the nation needed for those men to come back and have some sense of normalcy. And there's a powerful, persuasive, you know, kind of use of technology there. And no one's more excited about that than me um, in its, you know, scientific priorities and so on. But meanwhile, there are people like Chris, you know, rigging up a holster and changing his baby's diaper at the level of the living room, right? In this incredibly domestic space, doing this very creative kind of thing. So we look at both Mike and Chris, so Mike using the high-tech arm, Chris using this low-tech stuff in the, in light of rehabilitation engineering and replacement parts. And we travel to India to visit the Jaipur Foot Organization at a clinic there in Ahmedabad where they've been making lower leg, lower limb prostheses out of um, affordable materials and distributing them for free for a long time. So, and, and all of that is a way to help people rethink what counts as innovation And I point to David Edgerton, who points to technology and use as a way to think about impact rather than just high-tech laboratory impact. So all of this is just meant to say, oh, look, disability is such an ordinary part of life. And also people are doing extraordinary things with their bodies. And a lot of times with gear and the gear looks like all different stuff and it comes from labs and it comes from living rooms. And we can rethink all of our ideas about uh, industrialized innovation, industrialized progress, industrialized solutions and fixes, if we widen our lens and include more people as experts and more uh, kinds of materials for where those things are happening. So there's a couple of other stories in that limb chapter. And then we move on to chair and we meet, you know, a, a child uh, toddler with a rare genetic condition uh, that will probably prevent him walking or talking, um, getting a bespoke chair made out of cardboard for him in a storefront in Manhattan. And that's the high dynamics of that chapter are to try to contrast that with the, with the famous Aeron chair, which a lot of people don't realize had its origin story and design for aging. And now is a kind of status symbol that you'll see all over, um, especially all over Silicon Valley. It, but it's this very ergonomic chair, right? Made as a, a kind of universal design and so on. Mm. And all of that is to enrich narrative form, or what I hope is rich narrative form, to try to evoke for people the multiplicity of the ways that design and disability meet in the built world. It's just everywhere. And the the plurality that that suggests. Mm. I'm really interested in, just to go back briefly to this, the fallacy of empathy, I guess we could call it. Yeah. And the dangers of- um, Simulation. Of simulation right. and kind of yeah. risking a quite kind of sorrow-filled association with yeah. perceived limitations of disability. Whereas yeah. the approach that you're describing here, and even just in the way that you are telling these stories of um, 
of people finding solutions to bring the world closer to their experience of it um, mm. is really joyful and celebratory. Mm. And um, it's finding delight in the kind of ingenious solutions that I guess a designer may not have been able to, to think about. And part of that is to try to animate the field, right? To stop thinking of ramps in terms of legal compliance and um, liability, and instead to think about all the innovative ways to think about non-normative use of the built environment and to start there, to start with the creativity, imagine, you know, which is powerfully alloyed then to urgency of the politics, but, but one can't exist without the other. book with a chapter uh, about time and you introduce this concept of crip time yeah so I was you know in in constructing the the chapter flow of the book I wanted to go to these kind of increasing scales that that extend from the body so that limb chapter that I just described to you right literally on the body and then to products in the form of the chair chapter to room which is about interiors to street which is about urban planning and then I wanted to I always knew that I wanted to end the book with a kind of systems design, service design, like what are the places where the material design of the world actually stops like being able to do replacement parts in any kind of like prosthesis way. And part of that, of course, is because I have a son with Down syndrome. So designing for developmental disability is a different kind of misfitting, to use that term again, a different kind of square peg in a round hole. And I wanted to try to get my head around that. So uh, really that chapter is about, so clock is the name of that chapter and it's about designing for misfitting in time. So that's a conceptual object, not a literal kind of design, but a, like what does it mean to be a square peg in the round hole of industrialized time? Meaning the time that sets up our human worth as um, measured by our capacity to normatively get through K to 12 schooling, to go to the right kinds of higher education, um, offerings in order to have the right kind of or the sort of most productive 40-hour work week job and become a tax-paying citizen. That, that kind of exacting clock is the one that organizes all of us in a post-industrial culture. And it not only organizes us and makes us, um, you know, obedient to its demands, but it, it serves as an index of our worth. And I, I sort of draw out how, you know, if you go to the pediatrician's office, with a young child right away, right? That, that child is being organized as normal and, and normative on a kind of scale of percentiles and bell curves and so on. And all of that measurement is relative to one another. It's social science and statistics, which are useful for understanding populations, but they, it can, by the aggregative fallacy, that's what social scientists call it. It can distract us from the, the ordinary relationship to time that is right in front of us and in the, in the local and the particular. So I look at my son, Graham, uh, whose misfitting is via non-normative intelligence means that he does not proceed through school in the kind of expected ways, right? And he won't be an economic unit in the way that my culture values above all else, above all else. I mean, it, and it is so vivid and real to me all the time. So I was trying to ask, like, well, what are the ways that you would design for this? Not only that, you know, but also invite the reader to say, where is time organizing your life and the ones, the people around you? And could you, even if you're a realist like me and have a job and pay taxes and do all those things, and you're not going to burn it all down. Could you find a way to throw off the clock as the one, as the measure of all of your worth, right? Of, of all of what's good, of all of what's desirable in a common life. Can you organize around something that that is actually outside of industry? And I talk about even like the history of daylight saving time and just the way that the clock has standardized just by, sh you know, shared time zones and so on. All of that is in the service of making industry more efficient and more possible. And very little of it is, is directed at human flourishing. So in the end, we end at a service design 
uh, of a bunch of young adults in here in Boston who are doing a community service kind of city year project. And they are, these are people who are, have physical disabilities, they have developmental disabilities, autism, uh, Down syndrome and other things. And they are on the giving end of the community service, not on the receiving end, which is of course what they mostly are. They're mostly on the receiving end, but they spend a hundred hours a year doing things like cleaning up public parks and, um, you know, painting uh, doorways in a high school. And I try to show right in our field, service design is this arrangement of interactive elements. What if that were the possibilities for design to counteract that kind of clock misfitting? Mm. And it's so poignant that it, it's these kind of acts of repair where this, this kind of um, practice is centered on. Yeah. For me, there's this question of, well, you ask this question uh, near the end of the book, and I think in other interviews you've given about like, what is the ground of human worth, yeah. if not within a kind of market economy? Um, yeah. Where do you find value in human life? If, uh, right. if they can't be framed, if life can't be framed as um, economically productive. That's and right. w I mean, there's no answer to that question. Well, there are, there mm -hmm. are answers in global wisdom traditions of all kinds, right? And mm -hmm. here's where the humanist arrives to the scene, right? I mean, yeah. in other words, but, it, but you're right that it is very difficult. Lots of people listening to this will go like, oh yes, well, of course people are not only measurable by their economic worth. Of course, we're not little units, right? To be weighed and measured in that way. And yet of course, we'd proceed as though that is the, the, the worth of our lives, I would say tacitly, but also if you press people and say, okay, well, fine. <laughs> if you don't want to be measured that way, fine. What is, yeah, where are your resources, right? And so some, some traditions would say, well, each human is sacred in its, you know, for having arrived on the planet, right? The dignity is, is, would even reach to the sacred. Marilyn Robinson said this in a New York Times op-ed, you know, over the weekend. And I thought, mm -hmm. geez, she can just say it. She'll just state it, right? <laughs> and to me, that feels um, like I, you know, do I believe that? I don't know. I'm still working it out. But there are there are traditions on offer. It's just that a lot of people are not willing to kind of go there because the implications are pretty big. Mm. Um, it seems like so much of uh, what's important about this perspective on disability has to do with um, shifting away from priorities of optimization and efficiency um, as the kind of only metrics of success. Yeah. Um, and the slowness that um, you embrace by first of all, the close view you take of people with different um, disabilities and um, the way they kind of move through the world but then also the slowness and the solutions they've found seems to add a really productive kind of friction to this system of value that yeah. is so problematic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, I think the most powerful bite of critique that's been offered by disability studies. So people think disability studies is like area studies, right? Like who have disabled people been in history? What is the history of disability rights? But disability actually knocks at the foundations of individualism. That's what it's really actually taking a big swing at, you know, is saying if needfulness is actually universal and if slowness is also part of life and if dependence is actually what makes us partly human, then that changes, talk about shifting the frame, right? That actually changes everything in terms of our ideas of social contracts and, um, you know, sort of, um, being free agents, right? These kind of atomic units that meet one another and make our social contract with one another. I mean, all of that theory gets rethought of when you think about disability as also part of the human experience. And it's that term ecology of care that starts to really resonate. And the acknowledgements, you again evoke um, what the book is pointing at in terms of this social underpinnings of disability and the fact that in order for you to even produce the book, you were so dependent on a whole network of providers and carers yes. and support at an institutional level as well. And the fact that right. you kind of acknowledge that, you know, affordable after programs, exactly. After school yeah. programs, affordable childcare, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera, are in a sense what um, allowed for this project to, to come into being. That's um, right. Is um, I guess just a case in point. Yeah. It's the place where feminist scholarship meets disability studies, I think, right? Which is just to say what feminists have been saying for a long time, that 
the giving and receiving of care is in all of our lives. I think we really do, no matter who we are, our choices around parenting or not, I think we really do want a world in which care is part of the landscape of human existence, right? And a mm. lot of our design work presumes a kind of independence above all and mm. um, self-sufficiency above all. Sarah, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is so enjoyable. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Wayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Colleen. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Sarah Hendren, to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show, and special thanks as well to the supporters on Patreon. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.